Welcome to the Say the Word podcast, where we'll dig into words and language as tools for curiosity. I'm your host, Cindy Givinoli, and together we're going to explore how language is used in literature, memoir, poetry, and all kinds of fiction and nonfiction to connect us to what it means to be human and how to use curiosity to peel back the layers of what's keeping us from living the rich, meaningful lives we were always meant to be living. Hello and welcome back. Today we're going to be diving into a short excerpt from Sharon Creech's middle grade novel, Ruby Holler. Now, I just have to share with you how I even came to read this book. I don't recall now exactly how it came to be, but at some point last year, my dear friend's 10-year-old son and I decided to have a book club together, just the two of us. You guys, if you are lucky enough to have a kid in your life anywhere near this age range, I highly encourage you to try this. It has not only been incredibly fun, but I have learned so freaking much from our conversations about these books. Some of what we've read, like the Percy Jackson series and all the Harry Potters, have been well-known books that I was familiar with. And we've also read some classics that I hadn't revisited since I was a kid, Hatchet and My Side of the Mountain. And then there have been some books that Sam's introduced me to, more recent additions to a genre that I hadn't really thought about much since I grew out of its intended age range myself decades ago. And it has been seriously eye-opening for me and has me completely re-examining how I view middle grade books and what's going on in the minds and emotions of kids this age. It's not as carefree as we sometimes like to imagine looking back as adults. Now, among some of the themes that seem to arise over and over again in these books are variations on aloneness and visibility. There's a sense, often both literal and figurative, in these stories of being on the fringe in some way. The characters are often in situations where they're old enough to understand that big things are happening around them from divorce to financial struggle to illness of some sort. But they're often only getting fragmented bits and pieces from the adults in their lives who are seeking to protect them from some unpleasant truths in life. There is this ever-present tension around the character's desire for agency and inclusion to have the adults see them and what they're capable of, and also a desire for safety and security and an ability to trust in the authority of the adults in their lives. These are often not the cutesy books you might be remembering through the haze of childhood nostalgia. And I think these themes can still resonate with us as adults, especially if we can set aside our sort of knee-jerk inclination to think that we already know all about this stuff. And we really listen to these young humans who are finding language to express their thoughts and emotions and experiences and allow them to remind us that just because the expression of something may use simple language, it doesn't mean that the idea isn't sophisticated. Being human is a complex business, whether we're 10 years old and figuring it out from the more limited worlds we inhabit of our homes and schools, 
or we're in our 40s and figuring out how to express our ongoing desire to be visible and seen and understood by the people we care about. These stories are also an incredible opportunity to recognize and revisit some of the beliefs that we created when we were those 10 and 12 year olds as we navigated this transitional time and to get curious about them, to examine them and see if they still fit, to see if they're still serving the lives that we want for ourselves as adults. So getting into today's selection, this is my first Sharon Creech book, though she has written a bunch, including a Newbery Medal winner or two, so it definitely won't be my last. Now this book is about two orphans, 13-year-old twins named Dallas and Florida, who have been labeled the Trouble Twins, and who have given up believing that there is any such thing as a loving home. They've been at the Boxton Creek home for as long as they can remember, and under the supervision of a couple named the Trepids. Let's dive in. The managers of the home, Mr. and Mrs. Trepid, were middle-aged, cranky and tired, and growing stiff and cold as winter-bound trees. They believed in rules, and their rules were posted on doorways and in hallways and above each child's bed. There were general rules and kitchen rules, bathroom rules and stairway rules, basement rules and outside rules, upstairs rules and downstairs rules, clothing rules, washing rules, cleaning rules, rules upon rules upon rules. If we didn't have rules, Mr. Trippett liked to say, everything would be chaos. If we didn't have rules, his wife would say, these children would eat us alive. Since Dallas and Florida had lived in the Boxton Creek home longer than any of the other children there, they knew all the rules. They also knew the punishments for disobeying the rules, and they knew them well, because they had broken every rule in the Boxton Creek home many times. How can we live every day of our lives without running, or shouting, or throwing, or talking, or dropping, or spilling? Dallas had once asked Mr. Trepid. Thinking corner, two hours, was Mr. Trepid's reply. As he sat in the dark corner of the basement, Dallas imagined a broad field rimmed with trees, and in that imaginary field he ran and shouted and threw sticks and mud, and when he was tired, he lay down in the green grass and felt himself getting smaller and smaller until he was a little baby, lying in the grass, and someone with a sweet face leaned in and wrapped him in a white blanket. When Florida was caught breaking one of the rules, she was more likely to argue, and as a result, to earn extra punishment. She could not sit still, could not walk when her feet wanted to run, and so on a fairly regular basis, she'd be running down the hall, and Mrs. Trepid's long, skinny arm would dart out from a doorway, snare Florida, and lead her to the nearest copy of The Rules. Don't you just love the rhythm of her sentences? Mm, I love that. At the heart of what I want to talk about here today is this idea of structure versus freedom, of constraint versus wildness, and what it means to balance those seemingly opposing forces in ourselves and our lives. Now, I'm going to go ahead and skip over the larger discussion of what this looks like on a macro, cultural, and social scale, laws and justice, justice systems and you know the like. And I'm going to zoom in on how this shows up in our individual lives and within ourselves. So let's begin with rules. 
Here we see this exhaustive list of rules that the Trepids have imposed. General rules and kitchen rules, bathroom rules and stairway rules, basement rules and outside rules, and so on. And without these rules, Mr. Trepid asserts that there would be chaos. Without them, his wife says, the children would eat them alive. Well, isn't that a telling bit of dialogue, right? At first glance, we might be inclined to give them the benefit of the doubt and believe that the Trepids have put these rules in place out of some sincere desire to keep the children under their care safe. But they give themselves away here, right? These rules aren't here for the benefit of the children. They're here for the benefit of the Trepids, which leads to the first set of questions we can ask ourselves as we consider the rules that we choose to live by in our own lives. Whose rules are these? Who benefits from them? And do they serve my life or my values in some way? So many of the rules, the constraints that we abide by as we make decisions about how we move through the world are at the very least influenced, if not wholeheartedly determined by our conditioning, social and cultural conditioning or our families of origin and their expectations or just the norms of our communities. These all create rules that we don't often even recognize as such. They don't get posted on every surface like the trepids do, right? And this is one of the first places our curiosity can begin to serve us here. As we consider who we want to be and how we want to live, what are the constraints that we choose to abide by? Where do they come from? Whose rules are they? Do they make sense to us? I mean, sometimes they do make sense to us, even some of the rules we don't particularly like, right? You know, something interesting here is that we can see how, even though the Trepids have created these rules merely to benefit themselves, some of them still may have merit and benefit for the children as well, right? It may make perfect sense to have rules about stairs or running indoors or which utensils might be used when in the kitchen, that some of these might contribute to their general well-being and safety. So do we throw the baby out with the bathwater every single time? How often in our lives do we benefit from the very structures that we feel resistance to? And on a micro level, I think of, okay, this is gonna be a little bit trite, but I think of my own relationship with like my alarm clock, right? I am someone who is at my best early in the day. I generally devolve into semi-worthlessness by, I don't know, around 6 p.m. And I can be out cold by 9 or 9.30 most nights, no matter what time I woke up that day. And if I'm going to write or create or be at my, post, my most productive, it, it's pretty important that I start my day pretty early. I thrive in the wee hours. So the structure that serves me best is to set an alarm and be up around 5 a.m. I know this. I know how incredible my days can be when I adhere to that structure. And also, I don't know if I've ever had my alarm go off at 5 a.m. and not resisted it not wish for more time or more freedom to wake up whenever I damn well pleased. Now, I know this is a self-imposed rule and it doesn't but it doesn't make me any less resistant to it, right? It was created solely for my own benefit and yet I chafe against the structure. I think most of us can likely relate to this in some way. See places in our lives that we know having boundaries and structures to guide us can help keep us grounded in a way that connects us to our work or our goals or things that matter to us. Okay, I want to come back to that. 
But first, let's keep looking at the Trepid's rules here and why they don't work. Dallas and Florida know all the punishments for disobeying the rules because they've broken every one of them many times over. They've broken every single one multiple times. Why? There's a pattern there, and any time there's a pattern, it bears closer scrutiny. In this case, I think the pattern speaks mostly to rigidity. Not only do the trepids have an excess number of rules that the kids in their care have to abide by, but there are no exceptions. There's no flexibility in those rules application. And that rigidity eventually results in the realization by the kids that they can't win, that ultimately they are going to get punished for something, so they might as well make it worth it. If rules and structure are intended to create guidance, there has to also be enough space within them for the exercise of judgment, for evaluation and appraisal in how to apply that structure. There has to be room for freedom and choice and individuality. I mean, can you see how this might play out in your own life? How being overly rigid can undermine structures that might otherwise serve you? And is there a place in your life that is particularly vulnerable to that kind of all or nothing approach? Again, to return to my alarm clock example, the truth of the matter is that at this point in my life, I can be honest enough to admit that as much as I aspire to be one of those people who pops out of bed at 5 a.m. every single day ready to take on the world, it's not going to happen. So instead of week after week of flogging myself for any day that I either hit the snooze button or otherwise fail to abide by that structure, I can, you know, get curious instead. I can step back from that knee-jerk judgment that I'm lazy or that I lack self-discipline, and I can just look for ways to achieve the actual goal, which is to maximize my creative time and to make work that I care about. I can look for ways to loosen the structure some. So what if I commit to that 5 a.m. wake up four days a week and leave some built-in wiggle room to exercise some freedom around how I want to apply it on any given week? leaving flexibility and adaptability where necessary. I mean, this example is a little bit silly, but for me, having freedom alongside my rules is critical for that structure to work in my life. And I think a lot of people are like this. The minute things get too rigid, I become like Dallas and Florida, willing to take the consequences simply for the fun of setting that rule book on fire. I, if I'm not going to be able to win anyway, well, you know, I might as well have some fun on my way down, right? Yikes. So this brings me to the second part of this discussion, which is freedom. I mean, freedom on so many levels is the actual backbone of all functioning structures. As humans, we must have room to be ourselves, to become fully realized, to be visible in order to reach our true potential, our full potential. Functional structure supports that. It creates boundaries that allow for focus and direction of what we find in our wildness, in our uniqueness. Now, I love this paragraph about what Dallas likes to think about when sitting in the dark corner of the basement. It says, Dallas imagined a broad field rimmed with trees, and in that imaginary field, he ran and shouted and threw sticks and mud, and when he was tired, he lay down in the green grass. Don't we all do that? 
We sit at our desks and we look out our windows, the wide blue sky, and imagine all the other places we could be, all of the other things we would be doing with this moment if we weren't chained to a job or a location or some obligation or commitment we've made. We imagine that if only we were free from the confines of our lives, that we'd somehow magically become everything we were always meant to be, that we would somehow reach all of our potential. The thing is, is that while it might be true that taking a few things off of our plate or having a few more hours a day to pursue whatever we want might open us up, the old adage often holds fast that wherever we go, there we are. You know, we often think of freedom in this light as having no obligations on our time or attention aside from whatever catches our passing fancy. But this sort of freedom rarely delivers all that we hope it will in the long run. Very few of us truly thrive without any structure at all, whether that structure is in the form of rules or schedule or is more loosely defined by the compromises and obligations necessary to maintain meaningful relationships. I can't tell you how many clients I talked to over the course of 2020 who, before the pandemic, had dreamed of working from home. But once they got, you know, sort of the freedom to do it, They've struggled to maintain their work-life balance without the structure of their office and that separation of their commute. My husband and I often joke that the only times that we don't get our daily meditation practices in for the day are the days that we have nothing else planned. Sometimes this kind of freedom might mean the ability to do whatever we want, whenever we want, but rarely does that serve what we really want, the healthy relationships or the connection or purpose, the real visibility for our authentic selves to the people that matter to us. For most people, the magic happens when we balance structure and freedom, a place that, as the writer and activist Glennon Doyle likes to say, allows us to be both held and free the freedom that comes from being able to fully express who we are, what and who we love, to create lives of beauty, and like we talked about in episode three, to find the softer voices of our own lives and a supportive place to sing our songs. That freedom is at the heart of the most effective structures, those that exist to give what we find in our wild natures a way to take form, a container for expressing. I often think of freedom as the place where we find the creative fodder and structure is the place where we do the work of bringing it into being. I'm reminded of a conversation I had years and years ago with a dear friend of my husband's. This friend has worked in advertising for decades and he's a talented musician and writer and just an all-around creative. And we were walking along and the phrase coloring outside the lines came up in reference to exercising creativity. And our friend launched into this hilarious rant about how much he hated that phrase and that he believed that true creativity was taking the space within those lines and doing something original and new and exciting in it, of reinventing what was possible within those constraints. And that conversation stuck with me over the years. And I think it kind of applies here. Having the freedom to dive deep into our wild natures, to explore and dig and follow the mysterious hallways of our heart houses is critical in order to manifest all that we are capable of. But to fully manifest any endeavor, we still need to show up for the work. We still need to reach out the hand or return the call or lace up the shoes or lift the weights, right? We still need to sit down at the computer and type the words or do the research to 
open the sketchbook or prepare the canvas or mix the paint. We need to practice and refine and edit and have the tools to pick ourselves up and try again when an attempt doesn't work out as expected. When Dallas is imagining his freedom, he imagines getting smaller and smaller until he was a little baby lying in the grass and someone with a sweet face leans in and wraps him in a white blanket. We want freedom to try, to risk, to explore, and we want a safe place to land if it all falls flat. A sweet face to wrap us in a blanket, some comfort, and at least a little bit of safety. And that comfort most often comes in the form of rhythms and structure and relationships. The trust that comes from showing up for ourselves with reliability and steadfastness that comes from doing our work, whether that's the work that makes our living, the work that makes our art, the work that makes our families and our communities, or the work that makes ourselves whole and complete. But those rhythms and structures, those relationships must contain space. They must contain flexibility and room for questions and exceptions. They must allow for reevaluation. It's critical to ask questions of the rules that we live by, whether they're self-imposed wake-up times or the behavior we deem appropriate in different circumstances or how we define the roles that we have in our relationships. Whose rules are these? Who do they benefit? How do they serve my life, my community? What happens if I bend them? What happens if I break them? What happens if I reject them altogether and I replace them with an entirely new set? Like Florida in this story, all of us have times when we cannot sit still, when we cannot walk, when our feet want to run. We must make sure that there is room in our lives for that running, that we keep some band-aids in the medicine cabinet for when freedom is more important than safety, that we create a foundation of trust and curiosity that can catch us when we trip, when we fall, and when we bleed. We ask ourselves questions. We stay open to changing our minds, to exploring what works for us and what doesn't. And that curiosity keeps us out of the clutches of harsh judgment. It lets us figure out how to keep running forward after a stumble, how to stay creative within structures we can't change, and how to build structures rooted in freedom. Dallas and Florida aren't looking for a world with no rules at all just one with rules that serve them, comfort them, and have plenty of room for them to run and grow and thrive within, to support them as they become fully themselves. The Trepids were too fearful to allow that, too sure that any loosening at all would create a slippery slope into total chaos. We fight that fear in ourselves by staying with it, by asking questions of it, seeking to understand it and unpack it, by showing it compassion while also prying its fingers off of our lives one digit at a time. You didn't think we'd get all, all that from a single passage in a middle grave novel, did you? So again, this is from Ruby Holler by Sharon Creech. I am definitely looking forward to checking out some of her other books, and I just loved this one. You can find the link to the book in the show notes, as always, at cindygivinoli.com backslash podcast. And that is also a great place to leave a comment with a favorite quote or a line from a book or poem that you've loved and what it's meant for you. So this week, I want to share this one from Michelle T. She says, 
My favorite book of all time is Love in the Time of Cholera by Gabriel Garcia Marquez. There are so many quotes from it that I want to share with you, but this is the one that I chose, the quote. He allowed himself to be swayed by his conviction that human beings are not born once and for all on the day that their mothers give birth to them, but that life obliges them over and over again to give birth to themselves. And Michelle says, I love this because it reminds me that who I am is never set in stone, never fixed in place, that I am allowed to rebirth myself over and over again as I grow and change. Michelle, I have never let, read Love in the Time of Cholera, but you have definitely convinced me to add it to my list because I love that. So thank you for this. What an incredible reminder. So we're going to be looking at Rebecca Solnit's A Field Guide to Getting Lost next week, and I can't wait. Until then, be sure to stay curious out there. That's it for this episode of the Say the Word podcast, where we explore how language is used in fiction, nonfiction, and poetry to connect us to what it means to be human and how to use curiosity to peel back the layers of what's keeping us from living the rich, meaningful lives we were always meant to be living. Be sure to share and subscribe so you don't miss an episode, and I would so appreciate it if you would go ahead and leave a review. Thanks for listening. I'm Cindy Givinoli, and I'll see you next week on Say the Word. Say the Word.